Uh, the season that we're in, uh, in the Christian calendar year known as Lent, um, it is a season for returning. Uh, it is a, a thought of as a season of returning back to God. It's a season that acknowledges and confesses to the ways we have grown apart from God. Um, it's acknowledging, you know, maybe we, we don't have that passion for the resurrection as we once did or as we hope to have. And so this is a season for us to prepare as we um, return to God in that way. Now, to be theologically accurate, you actually cannot walk away from God because God is literally everywhere. Um, we, we cannot distance ourselves. If we, you know, we flee to the highest heights, the deepest depths, God's spirit is there. So the distance that we feel between ourselves and God is primarily a, a mental and emotional distancing. Um, it, there are barriers that have been built up uh, by poor choices that we've made that feel, make us feel like we are distanced from God, but, but know that God is near. Um, and also know that it's through our physical bodies that we close that gap mentally and emotionally between us and God. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Uh, Wendy read eight of the 176 verses in Psalm 119. Uh, it's not just the longest chapter in the Bible. It may be the longest poem that you ever read. Uh, the distinct theme of this psalm, the 119th psalm, is uh, God's word and the role it plays in bringing us life. And the psalmist is very creative in using words to open our hearts to the God of words. Uh, the song contains a reference to God's word in all but five of the 176 verses. In the 171 verses that reference God's word, the psalmist uses 10 different synonyms. And just in the brief portion, the eight verses that we're looking at today, the synonyms used for God's word are word, commands, decrees, laws, statutes, precepts, and ways. And all of these refer to God's spoken words recorded in the Torah, uh, the first five books of the Bible. That's, that was what God's word, written word, existed in the time of the psalmist. And since then, God has continued to inspire authors who, um, who have written God's word for us and for our benefit. In the New Testament, uh, we read that the Apostle Paul says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So we're going to kind of look at what, what is God's word and what, what can it do for us. And in this, it's not just the psalmist talking about God's word. In all but 14 of those 176 verses, the psalm uh, addresses the Lord directly and personally, and that's very important. This is a very relational um, interaction. And um, this kind of blows my mind. Uh, psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. Let me describe um, how it is broken down. The psalm is broken into 22 groups of eight verses each. So we're going to look at the second grouping of those 22 groups this morning. The Hebrew alphabet consists of 22 letters, and the 22 groups are in alphabetical order 
and the first word of each of the eight verses starts with the corresponding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. For example, the first letter in Hebrew is Aleph. So Psalm 119, 1 through 8 was written in Hebrew in a way that each of the eight lines begins with the word that starts with the letter Aleph. The section that we are looking at, um, the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet is Bet. So if you're picking up on that, Aleph, Bet. So th those are the first two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's where we get our word alphabet. Um, each line of verses 9 through 16 begins with a word that starts with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, so just I'm going to throw this out there uh, before we dive into some of the meaning and application of this. Uh, maybe this week I would encourage you to write your own acrostic poem about God's word. Maybe you use each of the 26 letters of our English alphabet and you have 26 things that uh, resonate with you as you think about encountering God through his word. Or maybe you condense it and you write a five-letter acrostic poem using the letters Bible, B-I-B-L-E. Um, take some time just to sit with that and engage with God and, and, and activate that right half of your brain and thinking about how um, God's words for you have impacted your life. So let's kind of think about what, what this portion of the psalm uh, is talking about. And I want to kind of roll through some things rather quickly. I've got a, I've got a few object lessons that will maybe help it stick with us a little bit. But the, uh, the author begins by using a word, uh, the word pure. Wendy read this, it started off in this way, how can a young person stay on the path of purity by living according to your word? Um, this verse makes me wonder if this entire psalm perhaps was penned by a young person. Maybe a teenager is the one that wrote this psalm. But let me ask you this question. I'd like for you to respond in the chat feature. What comes to mind when you hear the word pure? What comes to mind when you hear this word pure? You write a few things in there and I'll um, share those with everybody else. Uh, clean, water, virgin, unsullied. Oh, that's a that's a poet right there writing. What did they think of? <laughs> Thank you, Kate. Um, snow, that's beautiful, yeah. Um, elemental, unblemished, without corruption. Yeah, I think these are great examples. Um, John Bell said 100% clear. Uh, cashy, yeah, this is a good word, no guile. Um, so there's there's so many ways for us to consider what this word pure means. And it it has to do with innocence. And like you said, it's not defiled, it's perfect, it's clean, um, squeaky clean. Uh, maybe though you think of pure as like Puritan or boring or something like that. But this is something I found interesting that the this word pure comes from a root word that's translated as translucent. When something is translucent, that means light is able to pass through it. Now, imagine with me, this is talking, uh, this is written maybe by a younger person, but it's definitely written, written with a younger generation in mind. So imagine a younger generation of children and teenagers who grow up translucent, the light of Christ shining through. 
what if they became known as the translucent generation? Uh, does that mean that they grew up perfect or never losing that innocence? Not necessarily, because maybe one of the ways that Christ shines through their translucent life is by way of his mercy and grace and forgiveness uh, through resilience. Somehow, some way, the light of Christ shining through. How does a translucent lifestyle happen? Regardless of your age, how do we become translucent so that Christ shines through us? This happens by living according to God's word. So that kind of leads to another question. Um, what, what comes to mind when you think of God's word? Well, I want us to use some of the verses in this small section and this is where I'm going to kind of draw some, uh, with some object lessons, draw some parallels to help us understand what God's word is and how it can help us lead a translucent life so that the light of Christ shines through. Maybe this is returning to that point in this time of Lent where we are allowing Christ to shine through us as he once did or as we have prayed for him to do as never before. Um, verse 11 um, this is what came to mind as I was reading verse 11. Let me explain. Verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So here's that word sin again. We talked about it a little bit last week. It's an archer's term that means to miss the mark. And as a reminder, the mark that we're aiming for is not perfection. We are aiming for a person, God himself. We are aiming to connect with him. So the psalmist is not necessarily emphasizing don't sin. The emphasis is aim for the things that draw us closer and closer with God. And so right up front, the psalmist says that treasuring God's word, hiding God's word in our heart, keeps us in close friendship with God. Um, this is why this, this wrench came to mind. Um, so I've got an old 71 Ford. It's been in the South Bay for the last few years. And uh, some good friends of mine hauled it up here, hauled it up here because it doesn't run. Uh, so Jack and I are gonna start working on it. Um, the tools that I have cannot transform my truck. Um, now the tools I have can serve to change the appearance or to improve its functionality. But, but they won't transform the identity of my truck. It's still going to be, no matter what I do to it, it is always going to be a Ford truck. Uh, but tools are things that I hold in my hands to accomplish my end goals. The better I know and can handle these tools, the more I will enjoy the outcome of my work. So I want to say that it is important for us to be able to handle God's word, but I also want us to think about God's word as it's not just to be used for information. Um, ideally, it is to work in us for transformation. Now, I want to kind of pull back and say it's a bit ironic that some of us who have been to seminary uh, pursued a, a degree that's known as the a master of divinity. And it kind of implies, this is what I think is kind of funny, it implies that we are going to master someone or something that is so beyond us in the divinity. 
So I would say if you feel compelled to attend seminary, don't pursue a master of divinity. Seek to be mastered by the divine. None of us are called to master the Bible, God's word, but each of us is invited to humbly open up to the transforming work of a loving master. In other words, a tool in the hand of the Holy Spirit can work supernaturally to transform us. Yes, it's important for us to know God's word, but not for us to use as a tool but for us um, to allow God to use his word as a tool on us. Way back in June or July of 2019, I stood for the first time in the auditorium at Bay Marin in front of many of you, and I read a passage from Acts 4 that described Peter and John as unschooled, ordinary men, but they were revered as men who had been with Jesus. This church, Bay Marin, has a strong and important history with the seminary, but I want us to be known throughout Marin as people who have been with Jesus. When we are entering into the story of God, we are deepening our relationship with Jesus. Can the Bible be some sort of tool used to transform us? Certainly, in the hands of the Holy Spirit, Scripture can be used to transform our identity. We submit our minds and our hearts to the master. Can the Bible be some sort of weapon people use in harmful ways? Unfortunately, yes, that is true. And sadly, maybe some of you have been on the receiving end of scriptures being used in an abusive way. I'm just saying that the impact of the Bible, like a tool, largely depends on whose hand is holding and wielding the Bible. And the idea behind the phrase, hiding God's word in your heart, is treasuring God's word, treasuring the things that God has said. So more important than knowing God's word is treasuring what we know. When the Bible is a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit, we can expect our loves, the things that we desire, the things that we treasure, to become aligned with what is good and beautiful and true. When the Bible is a tool in the hands of the Holy Spirit, we can expect to naturally live a more translucent life, the light of Christ shining through us. Verse 12, I thought of a devotional book um, for this, when I thought of this description for God's Word. Praise be to you, Lord, teach me your decrees. The Bible is a story. It's a beautiful story, but it's also a dangerous story. It's a story that's not about us. It's all about God and how he revealed himself to us through his son. The psalmist is reading God's word, and he says, praise be to you, Lord. He's saying that these are his decrees, and it's all about him. And I'll admit that I probably get most frustrated reading my Bible when I try to form it around my story and around what I feel comfortable. Um, you might have a devotional book uh, similar to what I'm holding right here. There are an untold number of devotionals that are in print. I've participated in them. I've read them. I've contributed to, to them, not like officially published, but helping people uh, just by kind of taking like this one is, um, it has a scripture verse and then a little thought about it. Um, 
the, the scriptures are often in a devotional book, often selected in, in a way that speaks to different categories like peace or healing or hope or promises. And all those, those, those books are quoting the Bible. Um, it sometimes can be done in a way that places me and my needs at the center of the story. And it's not fair to the story, nor Jesus as the primary character of the story, to choose only the most palatable and agreeable verses. One thing that makes a story great is the tension that's built into the story. On Good Friday, between 6 and 8, as Rebecca has said, you're invited to enter into some of the most tension-filled moments of the story. And having that good that experience on Good Friday, I truly believe that the praise you give God will be deeper and louder on Easter Sunday. The story is a gift to us, but it's not about us. I live a more translucent life, a life that shines the light of Christ when I keep Jesus central to the story of the Bible. Um, verse 16, I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. I've got a birthday card that Beth and the kids gave me just a couple of weeks ago. And what I want to emphasize here is the psalmist um, is not falling in love with the scriptures, but with the God of the scriptures. So using this birthday card as an example, I love this birthday card primarily because it was signed and written in by Beth and Callie and Jack. Um, one of the things that, that Beth wrote, <clears throat> Gary, I love you. Other than Bon Jovi, there is no one else I'd rather be married to. No, I'm just kidding. She didn't write that. But it's true. I know it's true. Regardless. All right. For the past two or three weeks, I want you to know where this card has been. It's been propped up in the middle of the kitchen table. So when we gather to eat a meal together, I want you to know that my attention, though the card is right there in the middle of the table, my attention is not drawn to the card. It would really be strange if I sat down with my family and I talked more about the card than I talked to my family. The card right in front of me, but I'm engaging with Beth and the kids. It seems to me that this is the point that the psalmist approaches the written words of God. The words of God are placed prominently before the psalmist at all times, but it's all about engaging with God, not just about what he wrote, but the one who wrote those words. When I think about Bay Moran and who God is calling us to be, I envision us being a people who regularly and eagerly open up our minds and our hearts to God's word. I envision us being transformed by what we read about God and his love for us. I see us as a church, as a church family, figuratively speaking, around the table, building a, a, with Bibles propped up, but we're engaging with the author of the Bible. I see us as a translucent body of people with the joy and delight of Jesus shining through. And the last analogy that I want to want to give, and this will also prepare us for communion, um, God's word as bread. Verse 15 in Psalm 119 says, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. To meditate on something is 
to chew on something. If you've ever used that, that phrase, um, you know, let me chew on that idea. Uh, you are saying, let me mull that over and think about it for a while. Um, let me think about and consider that. Chewing is meditating and it involves taking in. We chew on and ingest God's precepts and we chew on and ingest God's ways. And then we allow that to nourish us, to propel us, to give us strength. It is God's word in us that transforms us. Transforms us into what? <laughs> it transforms us into a greater likeness of the central character of the story, Jesus himself. Through the internalizing of scripture, we engage in a process of transformation from the inside out. I'm not going to read the verses, but in, in the books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book written by John, the book of Revelation, we are, we're each of these, these characters, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and John, were presented with a scroll and instructed to eat the scroll. Now, I have to admit that when I think of the unrolling of a scroll that someone then takes a bite of, I've always pictured fruit roll-ups. I don't know why, but anyway, the writer of Psalm 119 um, later on in verse 103 says something that's almost the exact same thing as Jeremiah and Ezekiel. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So whether you believe that those encounters of eating God's word were literal or given to these people in a vision, the principle is obvious. The words on a page have to enter into you if they're going to make a difference. In John chapter 6, Jesus has a conversation, a very eye-opening conversation, a very compelling conversation with the disciples. Now, to set this up, at the beginning of John's gospel, it begins by describing Jesus as the Word, the Word made flesh. Jesus is declaring in John 6, listen to this, he says, For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the disciples responded, Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. The one who feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus is declaring that all who devour the word will have life. Those who chew on and reflect on and think on and ingest the word will have life, a translucent life. So let's prepare to approach the communion table with an appetite for the bread of life. When we partake of the bread and the cup, uh, you will naturally savor the bread and the drink. Um, confession before communion um, cleanses our palate, so to speak. Before we taste and ingest the symbols of Jesus' body and blood, I want to offer this communal prayer of confession to prepare us for the receiving of Jesus' sacrificial body and blood. So let this prayer kind of sink in with you as well. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. 
by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen.